I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open it up to Colossians, the book of Colossians. This morning I want to talk to you about thanksgiving for the right things. Uh, These days, Thanksgiving is basically a preseason holiday. Y'all know what that's like in NFL or Major League Baseball or whatever. It's something you do to get in shape for the real deal. And so we basically use Thanksgiving as a preseason holiday to get ready or get in shape for Christmas. We eat, we sleep, we watch football, and we don't stop until January. Right? That's a shame because the art of giving thanks is one of the things that separates us from animals. Y'all know that? To receive a gift and say thank you is one of the noblest things that man can ever do. There's nothing small, nothing trivial about saying thank you. It's actually to acknowledge that you've been given something that you did not earn, nor did you deserve. Happy is the man who understands that all of life is a gift from God. Especially the gift of salvation and eternal life. Through the Lord God. That's the ultimate gift. Which is why the Bible reminds us consistently to give thanks in everything. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning us. When we can't do anything else, we can always be a grateful people. As someone once said, if you can't be thankful for what you have received, you ought to at least be thankful for what you have escaped. The book of Colossians could rightly be called... Paul's book of thanksgiving, six times in four very short chapters, he has something to say about thank you or thanksgiving or being thankful. Needless to say, gratitude expresses itself in thanksgiving. Being thankful, on the other hand, is an attitude of gratitude. You can do and give thanks because it's expected of you or it's socially Uh, The thing that you ought to do without ever actually being thankful to the Lord. So thankfulness, we have to say, is actually something you feel, isn't it? And we should actually feel it deep down. When our thanksgiving springs from a genuine gratitude to our God, then you're actually on to something with the God that you belong to. Being truly thankful blesses our God. It is his reward, so to speak, from the recipients of his grace. And I think of all the disservices that we do to our gracious and generous and glorious God, our thanklessness has to be at the top of the list. Now, we'll thank him for a new car, right? We'll thank him for a better job. We'll thank our God for being generous to give us a new job or some big kind of windfall that you have But I believe that those are actually the crumbs of the grace of God. The real meat of the grace of God often goes unrecognized. What sort of things am I speaking of as your pastor? What are the main expressions of His grace that we ought to be thankful for? What should we recognize from our God? Well, to put this in a positive sense, what should be our main expressions of thankfulness? Is that not a good question to ask on the 18th? Before you eat all the turkey and dressing this coming week. Next week, 
I'm going to give you an after Thanksgiving sermon, sermon on blessed benefits out of a psalm. But today as we enter in to this understanding, what are some of those expressions? And looking at the book of Colossians, let me give those to you. First, you need to be thankful for the hope that is laid up for us in heaven. Now we've sung about that almost every song this morning. So you ought to have that theme in your heart and mind. But here is the meat of thankfulness that we ought to have toward our God. Being thankful for the hope that is laid up for us in heaven. Instead of reading one block of scripture like you're used to your pastor doing, I'm going to read the areas that touch on these three found directly from the text. The first one is Colossians 1 verses 3 through 5. Listen to this. We always thank God, there it is, the Father for our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the, world, in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you. Be thankful for the hope that is laid up for us in heaven. The objective reality of our future hope is stressed by the Apostle Paul in this section of verse, of verses of Scripture. First, notice our hope is definite. It's seen with the article in the Greek before the word hope. It is actually the hope that we have. Not just hope, as in wishful thinking, but the hope. In other words, this is a specific hope that is only for Christians. That's why we call it the Christian hope. It's not nebulous. It is specific for us. It's not wishful thinking, but it's confident assurances of the promises of God. Notice how the text says it's laid up for us. So first, it's, it's definite. It is the hope. But second, it's also reserved. That word laid up stresses the security of which God has set that aside for you and reserved it for you. Peter rejoiced in that. No accident that Daniel read, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. And in that verse, it says that this inheritance is undefiled. It is incorruptible, undefiled, does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. We often think that heaven is actually the reward, but really that's just the, that's the locker that houses your inheritance. It's reserved in heaven for you. And the writer reminds us of that. Christ promised himself that he would go and prepare a place for us. And the verb here connotes preservation without any possibility of loss. Isn't that great? That God has given you a hope that's a sure thing reserved in heaven for you in inheritance. And God guards it for you. There's no possibility that you can lose this inheritance if you're a born again believer. Third, the hope is for believers. It's not for the world. This hope is for believers. We sometimes hear stories of people who've lived for many years and they didn't have an awareness of any inheritance that had been bequeathed to them or people who are unable to gain access to this mother load of money because of some kind of legal thing or a barrier. Folks, I want to remind you as a believer, you're going to receive what God has promised. There's no ifs, ands, and buts about it. You're going to receive what God has promised if you're His child. Notice the phrase also says, in the heavens. Every believer has been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
in Christ Jesus. Let me read this to you. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Can't you be thankful for that today? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Christ Jesus according to the purpose of His will. Listen, to the praise of His glorious grace which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So the beginning of it is spiritual blessings. The end of it is that we've been blessed and placed there in the Spirit uh, from God in Christ, the Beloved One. That ought to be something you rejoice about today. That that's your position. That's your hope. Paul is celebrating this hope. And folks, I hope you understand that all of this centers in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Your Christian hope is soundly centered purposefully on the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is celebrating this for us. How important is the hope of glory to us? Does it make a difference in your life? Well, Paul tells us in Titus 2, 11 through 13 that it should make a difference in your life. The Bible says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching them that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. So look, that hope is not only something futuristic for us that's in the future. It's now in the present. And it ought to make a difference in how we live. Soberly, righteously, before the Lord of glory. John says the same thing in 1 John 3, 1 through 3. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Beloved, it does not appear what we shall be, but we know that when He appears we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. Listen to this. And everyone that has this hope, got it? Purifies himself even as he's already pure. We do that based upon this Christian hope. Have you ever heard someone make the statement that you can be so heavenly minded that you are of no earthly good? How many people have heard that statement before? Yeah, most of you have. That was a statement that was made years and years ago that it's, pretty po it's possible to be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. In other words, somebody could look at you and say, well, your theology lends itself to be totally future-oriented, and you don't think about the pressing needs of the day, and you're not thinking about uh, others, you're just thinking about your own private spiritual happiness. In other words, what they're saying is, if you're so heavenly-minded, then you don't produce love. It's more really of an escapism that you have. My question, is it true that when Christians set their hearts earnestly and intensely on the hope that they have in Christ and the future blessings of sharing His glory and one day seeing Jesus face to face and being freed from sin and sickness and living in joy for all eternity. When Christians set their hearts longingly on the Lord with strong confidence in those things, do they become so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly use? Really? This text teaches us that strong confidence in the promises of our God and a passionate preference for the joy of God in heaven over the joy of this world actually frees us from being self-centered. It frees us from self-paralyzing pity. 
It frees us from greed and bitterness and despair and laziness and impatience. The problem with people in the church today is there are not too many people who are passionately in love with heaven. Name three. You can't name three that are so passionately in love with heaven that all of life is lived out in the realm of putting your affections on things above, not self. No, it's not heavenly mindedness that hinders love and hope. It's actually worldly mindedness that hinders love and hope. Are you passionately in love with the promised glory of heaven? I don't know about y'all, but I've reached 48. And I think about heaven a whole lot more now than I did when I was 20. Thank the Lord for heaven. Thank the Lord that this is not it. I mean, a great taste of glory in here, right? To sing with the saints, because you're going to do it for all eternity. But folks, it has not entered into the mind what God has in store for those who love Him. To know that we have that blessed hope. Now, my question is, has this produced in you that sojourner mentality? That we're just pilgrims passing through. Or are you consistently trying to drive those tent pegs far into the soil of this world and be as comfortable as you can? Well, the Bible teaches that if you're saved by grace through faith and you're heaven's citizen, then you never real, will be totally comfortable in this world. You'll have your mind set on things above, not things on the earth. So therefore, the great fountain, let me say it this way, only one thing satisfies the heart of those who treasure heaven, and that's doing the works of heaven. If you treasure heaven, then you'll serve, you will minister You'll be all that God has called you to be. Therefore, the great fountain of love is powerful, freeing confidence in Christian hope. And thank the Lord God Almighty for Christian hope. Number two, be thankful for our transformed lives wrought by the Spirit of God. In other words, thank Jesus for salvation. Right? Thank Him for the glorious hope that we have in Christ, the Christian hope. But thank Him for salvation. Here's what the writer says. Chapter 1, 12 through 14, again, tracking that word thankfulness. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Wow. Chapter 2, again, verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in... Say it. Thanksgiving. You see how both of those are put together with the work of Christ in you to transform you. And then Paul reiterates in chapter 2 that Christ is in you. So this morning, let's recognize the value of the transforming power of God's eternal redemption. For us, through the blood of His Son. Paul said he was thankful for the fact, notice, that God had qualified him to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints. Now this may not mean too much for you today uh, as a churchgoer. But if you're an English student, maybe it does, or an English teacher. But this is an aorist indicative antecedent with action. In other words, you were not qualified by yourself. Your qualification into heaven, antecedent, God did this, God qualified you for heaven. Y'all know, folks, you can't qualify yourself. 
Y'all see it in the text? He qualified you. In other words, He made an authoritative decision to qualify you for heaven. Praise the name of Jesus. That He qualified us. Why? It's solely by His grace that He made us partakers and qualified us to be saints. Walk worthy of Christ. Constantly because of that. Give Him thanks. I've never met anyone who glories in the salvation that Jesus delivered to them that didn't walk around with a thankful heart. What we do sometimes is we think it's about us. And that we actually believe that we saved ourselves. And when you think you saved yourself, then you have no recognition whatsoever of being God-centered in your thinking. You start to think about self. And you don't think about the God who actually paid it all for you to be saved. And qualified you to be who you are. For, why, why is he giving thanks? In verse 12, we are to be joyously giving thanks to God because He's made us qualified. He qualified us, not due to anything we've done, but what God did. Second, to give thanks is closely associated with the first. He's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of His Son. That word transformed was actually a word that meant a mighty king would take one group of people and deport them from one place to another. Folks, do you realize what the king has done for us? Our king has picked us up and taken us out of the kingdom of darkness and put us into the kingdom of the light of his dear son. That's something we ought to thank God for. In that sense, as believing sinners, trusting Christ, we've been transported from darkness into light. From the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of Christ. From hell to heaven. That's what's happened to us as his people. And it's already been accomplished. All believers have been sublimely deported into the kingdom of His Son. At the consummation, uh, will bask in the glory of Jesus forever. Because of what God has done for us. That's reason to give thanks, is it not? And again, in verse 14, it says, In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Folks, what is the crown jewel of our salvation? It's the forgiveness of sins. Is it not? Aren't you thankful that your sins have been forgiven? I remember growing up, and we had a group that would come to our church and sing when we would have a revival service. They were, the names were the Baltziglers. And they would sing songs that were so theologically saturated in the day. And there was a song about that. Forgiven, forgotten, forever. Forgotten, forever. Amen. Got to finish that out for, right? Forgiven, forgotten forever. Why? Your sins are remembered no more. Forgiveness, the crown jewel of our salvation. You can lay your head on your pillow at night and never worry again if you're justified by grace through faith. Right? Who can lay any charge against God's elect? Right? Why? Because you've been justified. You've been forgiven. Just to think for a moment that All of your sins were paid for by Jesus. That's what Hebrews teaches. Past, present, and future. As a matter of fact, all of your sins were in the present, were in the future when Jesus died for you. Right? And the Bible teaches that He dealt with your sin. And He removes it as far as the east is from the west. And buries it in the deepest part of the ocean. Man, that's awesome. Forgiven, forgotten, forever. We are most likely to do His will, and we are most likely to honor Him most 
when we do it from a heart that is overflowing with gratitude to the mercy of God given to us. Have you thought about what you would be without Jesus? Have you thought about the sins He forgave you for when you came to Him? Right? The mercy of God. Do we share this morning the deepest sense of divine goodness to our God in providing a Savior for lost and ruined souls? Because that's what we were without Christ. So the Christian hope, thank God for it. Thank God for being transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ. And thirdly, be thankful for His peace that reigns in us. Chapter 3, 15 through 17. What's the phrase we're looking at? Thankfulness. Notice chapter 3, 15 through 17. Some of my favorite verses in the Bible. Listen. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be... Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Okay, be thankful for the peace that reigns in us. You know, we often fail to recognize the value of the peace that is present in our lives when we're converted and come to know Christ. I cannot imagine what my life would be like without the peace of God. Can you, can you imagine what your life would be like if you didn't have peace with God in your life? Stop for a moment and think about that. What is there in this world to celebrate in regard to thanksgiving if you don't have peace with God in your heart? Wow. What is this peace like? Well, I can still remember my first experience with the peace of God. I was nine years old. And again, it was a revival service that we don't have much anymore. I don't know if preachers just feel like they can't let anyone preach from their pulpit instead of them. Or what the scenario is. But you don't have those old time Bible conferences where the word of God is preached. And people come praying and anticipating that God will speak to them through his word. But that's what I grew up in. And that's what our church is going to have. Right? People are going to come and preach the word for us, not just your pastor. And we're going to ask God to change our hearts and work in us. But I went to one of those little revival services. And man, the Holy Spirit of God was drawing me. And I was caught in the net. And I couldn't get out. And I knew it. And on that one night, in that July service at nine years of age, I went into that service without the peace of God. I came out with peace overflowing because of Jesus. I was outside of an understanding of spiritual life, but immediately upon surrendering and submitting to Jesus and the plan of redemption, I immediately understood spiritual life and I understood what it meant to have peace. Have you ever experienced that peace again since salvation? You should. That surges into your life, even in difficult times. Jesus said, peace I give you. My peace I leave for you. I do not give you what the world gives. I give you my peace. Isn't that awesome? Uh, He gives us a special kind of peace, which he calls my peace. I'd rather have the peace of Jesus than anything this world has to offer. Well, really, there is no peace outside of Christ. Correct? My peace I give to you. My personal peace. It's not just the peace when we experience conflict in life. It's a sense of wholeness. It's a sense of well-being, completeness, and totality. Can I give you a layman's term? It means the presence of Jesus is in your life. That's what it means to have peace. What are we to do with this peace? Here's what the text says. Let the peace of God Rule your hearts. 
Wow, what an awesome reminder during Thanksgiving. Let the peace of God rule your hearts. What does that mean? Here's a couple of qualities regarding this peace. It has a divine origin. It comes from God, folks. You can't have this peace from the world. You can't have this peace in the stock market. You can't have this peace if you're looking in our world economically and thinking it's going to always be good. You can't have this peace that way. It's not something that comes from the world. This has a divine origin to it. This shalom, Old Testament-wise, amen, this peace that God gives to us with a heart change in Him is something that only God can do. It has a divine origin. It's given from, the, from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It protects the heart, protects the mind of all believers. It is the inner calmness and rest and the assurance that God is too good to be unkind. And He's too wise to make mistakes. You remember that song by New Song? You remember the name of it, Natalie? God is too wise to be mistaken, too good to be unkind. So when you can't trace His hand, what do you do? You trust His heart. Right? Well, that's when the peace of God is ruling in your life. When you're, maybe we can't always trace His hand, and we have our questions of why, and what's going on in my life. Of course, God cares more about your holiness than your happiness. Remember, the ultimate goal is for you to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's why He saved you, right? So here we are, understanding that. So this is divine in its origin. Second, it's a ruling peace. F.F. Bruce reminds us that it carries the idea of an arbiter. The Greek word actually refers to the function of an umpire. Isn't this great? Let the peace of Christ be an umpire in your heart in the midst of the conflicts of life. How? Why? Because the peace of God will help you to decide what's right. Ooh, that's good stuff, right? Let it act like an umpire in your life to help you to understand when the peace of God is not, when you don't sense the peace of God in decision-making processes, then I think you ought to have a check in your spirit to say, Lord, what's the arbiter, the peace of God? What is it telling me in my life in regard to this? Let it help you decide what is right. Let it be your counselor in the difficulties of life. Christian hope, transformed lives in the gospel, and peace in you. Boy, that's three things we ought to give thanks to God for. Let me end with this. We need to treasure our Lord during Thanksgiving. I conclude with Matthew 13, 44. The Bible says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure, hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now here's my question. What do we learn about the kingdom of God from Matthew 13, 44? Someone that's willing to risk it all, to lose it all, that he may gain what is the most important in life. We learn one main thing. The kingdom of God is so valuable that losing everything on earth but gaining Christ's kingdom is a joyous trade-off. Y'all getting that? Having the saving reign of Jesus Christ in and over your life is so valuable that if we lose everything in order to have it, it is a joyful sacrifice. What is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God in the full biblical context of the word? Well, it is the reign of Jesus Christ in the lives of His people. Present and future, that's what that 
means. So the kingdom of God is the rule of God to save us and to save us and to bring us out of destruction and into the enjoyment of Christ in your life forever. Here and in the presence. So thanksgiving should be a time when we savor Christ Jesus our Lord and His saving work in your life above all things. We would give up everything to have that treasure. And that treasure is the Lord Jesus Christ. So in this parable, there is a condition for the kingdom. For having the king on your side. But the condition is not wealth, it's not power, it's not intelligence. The condition is that you prize the kingdom of Jesus more than anything else in life. That's the condition this morning of you having the kingdom of God. The point of selling everything in that parable is simply to show where your heart is. Hmm. And if your heart is to have the kingdom, that means the rule of Jesus Christ over your life, then Luke 12, 32 comes true for you. You know what that verse says? It says this, It is your Father's good pleasure to give to you the kingdom. Wow. To give to you the kingdom. Is that not worth giving thanks for and rejoicing about? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Father, we want to thank you that if we're saved today, it was your will to give to us the kingdom. And Lord, all of us realize that if we're going to trust you, we can't trust anything else. We have to be willing to say no and and lose everything else for the sake of gaining you. Lord, help us to have a heart that is thankful to you. Thankful for the hope that we have in you. Father, I'm very much aware that people could be in this building this morning that They don't have that hope. They don't have that assurance of heaven. Lord, that can change today. Because you came to save sinners. Lord, would you do that? Lord, for believers, Father, help us to be thankful for the salvation that you've given us. Lord, that you've qualified us and translated us from the kingdom of heaven, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Lord, you've redeemed us. You purchased us from the slave market of sin. And you redeemed us and forgave us. You counseled the debt. Hallelujah for the Lamb. Hallelujah for salvation. And then, Father, for the peace of God. Lord, we need that. Maybe there are people in this building that have peace with you. Because they've been saved. But they're not experiencing the peace of God over their lives because of decisions, or because of drifting, or because of lack of devotional life, or praying, God, would you bring them back today to understand that surging peace that we have from you because your Spirit lives in us. Help us not quench and grieve the Spirit of God. God, would you bless a believer this day with a renewed understanding of what peace means to them. The peace that you purchased on Calvary. And by all means, if we have a believer under, my, under, under the teaching of the Word that doesn't have peace with another believer, God help them get that right. For us to look at Jesus on the cross of Calvary and think about what it cost Him to give us peace, and then for us not to have peace with our brothers and sisters in the Lord is not right. God help us. Help us, Lord. During this invitation, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.